Welcome to Prospecting Purpose, where we explore mining's role in shaping a sustainable, socially just, and brighter future. I'm Liz Friel, your host for the series, with a rotating guest on every episode. Have you noticed how often mining's well-intentioned engagement and community development efforts still leave stakeholders frustrated? How often they feel excluded and distrusting? Do you wonder how technology can be leveraged to overcome this, fostering collaboration, trust, and better development outcomes? Well, that's exactly what we're going to talk about today. Joining me as my co-host, we have Tracy Cooper, Executive Director and Founder of the nonprofit Mining Dialogues 360 in Johannesburg, South Africa. Having previously worked with organizations like the Gates Foundation, the United Nations, and the International Renewable Energy Agency, her leadership these days focuses on harnessing emerging technology to foster a much-needed multi-stakeholder collaboration to overcome socioeconomic challenges linked to the mining sector together. Welcome, Tracy. Thank you. Very pleased to be here. Thanks for inviting me. It's lovely to have you. As Executive Director of Mining Dialogues 360, you have been deep in this journey of creating spaces for effective collaboration for over a decade. Is that right? Yes, yes. And during that time, you've really built a reputation as a convener, a facilitator, and quite a respected uh, contributor to the industry's thinking regarding our role in socioeconomic development. Now, from what you've been seeing during that time, how has engagement and collaboration and the mining industry's involvement in sustainable development evolved over the years? How have we grown as an industry? Definitely been a significant ratcheting up of the appreciation for social engagement, social license to operate, or the social activities when I first uh, joined the industry were very much considered to be soft issues. And mm-hmm. they've been steadily rising, the, the um, annual risk profiles that are produced by some of the bigger advisory houses um, every year. And in the last three years, social license to operate has maintained its position as the number one risk to the sector, um, which is extraordinary. And it's, it's an important step, an important development in our appreciation for the impacts of mining in the socioeconomic context. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what I remember, so I've been I've been in mining for just over ten years now, and one thing I feel like I've noticed on my end is that it's no longer it doesn't feel like an add on anymore. Like I think when I started, it was a nice to have, like oh let's build a school. Um, but these days, I feel like there's a rising recognition around really embedding um, contributions to community development in the way we do our businesses. Do, does that resonate for you? Absolutely. I mean, there, there, there's been a convergence of a couple of things that have happened. I mean, what, one of them has very much uh, been the understanding that if you if you acknowledge social license to operate or the social impacts as, as part of your core business, it's actually now a business imperative rather than a nice to have. The development in that has been around the vast sort of exponential spread of connectivity Mm-hmm. Mining companies that often operate in, in very rural areas have often been able to get away with quite a lot that is unseen by the public. Right. But as connectivity improves in different areas, as people's access is to smartphones where, you know, you can now take a video on your phone if you're a local person and you can beam that up, there's a high level of risk with that kind of exposure if you're acting improperly around pollution, environmental issues, degradation in communities and so on. So that's made a big difference. And now the next sort of step that really come into the picture is ESG reporting, where the investment community are now reframing their mandates around what their their shareholders and investors um, are prepared to fund. So if your access to capital is now threatened, then that's definitely making the business case for for companies um, and the sector to reprioritize how they approach these, these issues. There's a generational transition happening in the mining sector. You know, you have millennial people now working in corporate in the corporate world and they bring a different set of ideals and values and 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 ethics and sort of morality absolutely to how they approach the world of work that's not just for in the workplace but it's also 
a generation of people who choose to are choosing differently about what they want to invest in, and they don't want to invest in businesses or or industries that they feel are against their value system that don't gel with their ideals about the planet, about the environment and and the future related to climate change. So not only have you got sort of an internal situation happening where companies are not necessarily going to access the kind of talent because those people won't go for the for the jobs of the industries that don't resonate with them, but also from an investment perspective. Yeah. They're not going to be your shareholders if they don't feel that you're doing the right thing. So I I wanted to ask you, regarding your approach and methodology that you've developed at Mining Dialogues 360 specifically, I think the industry can learn a lot from what you've managed to do over the years. What do you think it is that has made your approach so effective? What have you learned during your time in this organization? And what is really key as a takeaway? Sure. It's been such an evolution from when we started to where we are now. But what we've learned over the the time of hosting many multi-stakeholder dialogues, many community-level dialogues, is that we're first and foremost not a talk shop. Mining Dialogues as a forum, as as a collective of interested stakeholders, um, responds specifically to issues. So we don't necessarily have sponsored events that we host throughout the year where we're then looking for content. We respond directly to the, the issues and the, con- and the topics that are, are coming up of the day. And we then pull together the, the, the stakeholders and the people into a safe space where they can have the kind of robust conversations where there's no fear of, of victimization or a criminal or, or, not towing the party line of their organization. We specifically invite people into dialogues to talk as themselves, to be able to freely share their views and express points of view that they may not feel comfortable doing in public forums as representatives of their organizations. That could be from the company's perspective, a union, any kind of stakeholder. Mm-hmm. So Mining Dialogues has developed a reputation as a, as a neutral safe space to tackle difficult topics. Mm. And what that's done over the years is it's addressed Mm. the power imbalances that often exist in boardroom conversations or in other forums. It creates a level playing field. And of course, we always hold our dialogues under the Chatham House rules so that anonymity is protected. And I think the other key thing that we're particularly that we stress as important is we share the the meeting reports or the outcomes or the the main topics or the findings and insights from those those meetings. All the stakeholders, they become publicly available so they can contribute to other organizations, taking them forward for advocacy and policy work. They can contribute to environmental organizations for communities who want to have some, some fact-based information to use. So it's very much creating the right environment for people to feel comfortable and confident to speak freely. It's about listening to views. And then it's about knowledge sharing. And I think that's where we've sort of found a unique niche in, in the South African context, certainly, which is a very volatile um, sector. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I suppose that fostering that collaboration, that transparency, that's that safe space for people to understand each other is probably a pretty significant starting point, not just for, um, you know, meaningful consultation around, say, project design or reducing negative impacts, but also figuring out you know, how, as a mine, we can we can be a part of leaving this community better off than when we found it. Is that is that fair? It's very much about trying to break down the them and us narrative, which is very prevalent in the mining sector. It plays out in, in a lot of different ways. And, you know, having the credibility amongst all the stakeholders to be able to pull them together into a forum with the understanding that it is collaborative approach and being able to work with those conversations to foster solution-orientated thinking 
the the dialogues that we have are always based on empirical evidence, whereas in many situations, evidence or data or data that is produced by industry-led bodies, for example, or activist groups or the government of the department or, or the local government is often weaponized, right? Not used in a in a in a way to foster consensus and then look for co-designed solutions. It's used as a way to beat the other side down um, with... Not very constructive. With the data. Yeah. And that's proven to be a real downfall, I think, in so many forums that have failed in the past. So we, we step away from that and make a point of, of, of working in a very objective space and then fostering the solution-orientated thinking. It's not for us to provide the solutions. Our role is to help people to find each other. And I get the greatest joy out of, at the end of a day of, of, of dialogue, seeing people who would traditionally be very ad- adversarial across a table with each other, quietly swapping cell phone numbers, you know, and have, have found someone they could maybe talk to. And that's, that connection on the human level, really, I think, goes a long way to helping people when they step back into to their official role. Mm-hmm. I can imagine. And yet, you know, we still do have a lot of challenges and, and barriers. And I wanted to ask you about that. Like, for example, the uh, Responsible Mining Foundation, late 2020, they put this report out on the materiality mismatch regarding the sustainable development goals in the industry, specifically highlighting the theme of community well-being. So the data shows that even with all these learnings around engaging better and developing relationships, we still aren't terribly effective, even though we recognize it is a key area. So in what you've been seeing, what are some of our biggest challenges and, and barriers to really meaningfully collaborating in regards to integrated development planning? Social is really hard to quantify. It often creates a, a, a fearful mindset um, in many of the stakeholders that we deal with. And at Mining Dialogues, we really think about the social realm in terms of, of communities. And by that, I mean communities of place. So that could be an area or a location or residence, where they, whether it's the mine site or, or the labor sending area We talk about communities of practice, people who are Mm -hmm. doing things together, who are involved in an environment where their activities interlink or have impact on each other. And we also talk about communities of interest, where people have different kinds of interests that bring them together. So that can be a church group. It could be um, educational around uh, schools, parenting, could be around agricultural practices. So when we talk about the social and we talk about communities, we're not just talking about a community in a place that is sort of homogeneously kind of described. There, there are a lot more nuanced layers to understanding the social side of things than um, are, are widely understood. It starts with people acknowledging the humanity of each other. And I find it remarkable that people who are fantastic parents and loving family members and really upstanding in their local community can go to work and as they go through that office door, adopt a different persona that is so mismatched to the human person inside, the compassionate, real human being. So I think from a cultural perspective, companies specifically really need to foster and encourage their staff to bring that good human being to work, mm. you know, the, that, that role model in your, in your community, in your society to work and be rewarded for that, uh, not to be put down uh, or shut out because you're expressing a, a personal view. That's a critical cultural shift that needs to happen internally in organizations. Um, so you're seeing this happen. Yeah. And because for an industry like ours, that's incredibly challenging. I mean, we're, we're talking about bringing your whole self. We're, we're, we're talking about authenticity and vulnerability. And these are really scary things for anyone, but particularly in, in an industry like ours, I think. It's starting to become acknowledged as 
actually an important skill to bring to work. But saying that, you then see a, a situation like what happened in Australia with Rio Tinto and the desecration of the Aboriginal uh, heritage site. So there's a clear mismatch where there are a whole lot of guidelines and values that company subscribes to. But then on an internal level, the people who were flagging that problem were not heard. It's a change that's starting to happen. It's not running all the way through. And you must bear in mind that, you know, the, the major companies might be the ones who are driving this change, but there is still a lot that needs to be done in your mid-tier and junior mining companies who are not held up to quite the same standard of scrutiny as, as the bigger companies are. But I mean, there are quite a lot of other key barriers. I mean, a lot of information is in silos, and this is within companies as, as well as externally. We often encounter situations where there is an overlap or a duplication of spend in CSI activities because different departments have different budgets and different KPIs. There's very frequently one hand doesn't know what the other hand is doing. So the companies have a lot of data, but the data sits in different divisions and doesn't speak to each other. Mm. So that's something that really could be quite an effective tool to, to streamline those processes get the information out of silos. There's a, there's a huge amount of information sitting with a lot of aligned organizations like RMI and the Global Funds and certainly you know ICMM and other industry bodies that could really be very helpful. But you have to know those organizations. You have to go to know where to look. You have to know who to engage with. And if you're in a community that's so far removed from your reality, so the, the information is still going to remain in a sort of an exclusive, at an exclusive tier level, if you want to call it that. Right. So there's an access issue there, and I suppose, too, or, or a sharing of information challenge. Yes, there's a, huge, there's a huge challenge. And this is one of the biggest topics that comes up in dialogues that we have with communities, their lack of access to information. And this perpetuates distrust legacy, and it adds fuel to that fire. There's suspicion that everyone else is seeing information that they're not seeing, and so they're not prepared to uh, participate meaningfully in any kind of decision-making process. It's more like they would be consulted by being invited to a town hall meeting, shown a PowerPoint, asked if they agree, and in African cultures, out of politeness, people will nod and sort of say yes whether or not they truly understand the, the consequences or implications. And for an outsider coming from a mining com company or a local government to obtain consent uh, or free prior informed um, consent, they don't necessarily appreciate that what they perceive as consent is really just acknowledgement that we've been here and heard you. It's not that we agree or understand what you're putting on the table. That's a, the, the, the depth of understanding around culture and, and is, is really important. Um, and that leads to the whole issue around transparency and how you make information easily understandable. That's massive. I've definitely experienced that and, and share it, I guess, also. So yeah. one would be then, how do we make this information understandable to various types of stakeholders? And then to how do we share that in a way that is accessible uh, to, to those people? Because I wanted to ask you about the ways that emerging and exponential technologies can be more leveraged for fo fostering more dialogue and information sharing, promoting transparency and understanding um, there's a couple really cool examples. Like, for example, I read recently about something that Glencore was doing at Mount Isa in Australia. They developed the smartphone app um, with online real-time air quality monitoring data that had a portal uh, for their communities. And I presume maybe they're not the only ones to be doing this, but I just thought that was so interesting because that is very much taking a step towards, uh, as we said, um, gathering that data and then sharing it in a way that is accessible and meaningful to communities who want to be seeing it. You know, I, st I started um, kind of playing around in this area a couple of years ago when I was looking at the impacts of 
low orbit constellations for connectivity that were starting to be talked about by Elon Musk and Viya and Boeing and a couple of other organizations were talking about creating a network of, of global satellites that would host the ability for high-speed broadband in deep rural areas, it would give coverage for maritime purposes and so on. That's where my first interest in these sort of exponential technologies and, and the speed with which these developments were taking place began. And then based on so many conversations with, with people about lack of access to information and the need for a common evidence base that all stakeholders had access to, could understand and use in order to have an equal power relation discussion around a table about uh, decision-making in terms of, of spend, impacts, what was happening in an area. And we looked around a lot at, at technologies and it was quite shocking to find that, that most of the softwares that were in development or being used were very much uh, business-driven which meant there would always be exclusionary to a range of stakeholders because they're designed for reporting mechanisms inside of companies. They still rely on old methods of data gathering, surveying methods, going out into communities with a clipboard and a set of questions and coming back and typing that in. And it was actually quite surprising how little there was available besides these two sort of ends of the spectrum. One is sort of simple, easy to use community apps for a variety of things, um, or high level GIS, highly sophisticated software that is being utilized by those who can afford to purchase it and, and deploy it. Right. But there's there's which isn't necessarily accessible to communities. Yeah. So there's a massive gap in between. And what none of the software currently is able to do is capture the qualitative data that comes from having a conversation, being in a small group meeting and having a discussion. It doesn't allow necessarily for a digital ingestion of what people's feelings are, sentiment, perceptions, their expression of, of challenges and issues, but how those things are interrelated two topics. So for example, if you if you capture as a researcher that, that the issue of water was raised by the community in the consultation, okay, water in what context? We don't have water, pipes are broken, water is polluted. You know, there's a range of, of, of interconnected, nuanced uh, pieces of, of data that are missing if you cannot capture the conversation. So that's our real interest, is actually building it from the ground up. Because mm -hmm. what you're talking about here is, you know, there's, there's a lot of really interesting advancements that are being made in geospatial thinking, virtual and augmented reality. We've got companies popping up like Verify, Lamazoo, VizExperts. But what you're talking about is still bringing in this layer of the qualitative data that is so important in the daily lives of host communities. And that goes beyond, you know, put on your Oculus Rift and have a look at what the mind's going to look like. That still doesn't speak to that layer of data. So I'm wondering how this digital era can be more explicitly leveraged to advance collaborations on sustainable development for communities, not just for engagement and consultation on, say, project design. The studies are showing that for all the efficiencies and workplace safety progress that these exciting new technologies are bringing, we also know, for example, that a lot of jobs are going to be replaced. And historically, that's such a key part of social license for a lot of minds. And I think that puts the onus on companies to find other ways to do more around the social license question, around leaving communities better off than when we arrived. Because jobs are not enough and there aren't going to be as many in the future as there have been historically. Uh, we've just seen this accelerate even more since COVID. So I feel like the this conversation is very, very timely. So all of this is in the context of having growing pressure from the stakeholder capitalism movement to contribute more, not less, to humanity's grand challenges. And that's for business at large, not just the mining industry. 
So I have a lot of hope for the tech for good movement within this context. And I think you do too um, within this particular initiative, the socioeconomic technology initiative, which I wanted to ask you a bit before getting into that. Uh, what are some of the opportunities and examples that you're seeing around the tech for good movement that, that gives you hope both for companies and for stakeholders? There are a lot of opportunities to create community-based and driven monitoring systems. So in the environmental impact side of things, there are so many young graduates that come from mine host communities who simply cannot find employment in, in the traditional mining companies. But there are so many initiatives that are looking at monitoring the status of water, soil, air, and they're great opportunities to provide jobs for those graduates from the natural sciences, from the social, social studies areas, to enable them to gather data and to be literally local field team workers feeding into the bigger organization and conveying that knowledge that they have and what they're learning to their wider community to, to educate and engage uh, the people that they live with in their area. So, you know, it's not just sort of a feedback loops of data. There are a lot of job creation opportunities that are linked to harnessing the capabilities of, of data, um, which I find very exciting. And, and putting that data into the hands of the communities also, it sounds like. Yeah, very much so. And being able to bring the communities along with you. Communities will be a lot more excited about the opportunities around technology when they can see themselves directly represented, not by outsiders, but they see their views and opinions being put into an open space that, that really shares not only their challenges, but it also shares their ideas for how to solve problems. I think a lot of organizations very often are designing for, and they're not designing with, and they forget about the amount of wisdom yeah. and knowledge that people in a local area have had for generations and how that can really make a huge contribution to decisions around where you build something, where a road should go, what land is arable or not, or whether that particular space uh, has a 100-year flooding activity that, that, that can occur and you shouldn't put your buildings there. People in communities always surprise me about how resilient they are, how much they have to share. And if they are engaged as equals in a respectful manner. The best conversations I've ever had have been with almost semi-literate, illiterate people in rural places. They are just so remarkable. And I think we get so caught up in our very driven, frantic, technological lives that we forget how important it is to bring those people into these spaces and, and access their wisdom and knowledge rather than impose our thinking on them. And I think technology, if it's approached in the correct way with that very tech for good civic basis, civic tech, will encourage more of those people to participate and see this as a tool for them rather than as something to be suspicious of as... Mm being spied on or, you know, where's, where's that information going? Who's using it? What for? And so on. Yeah. Yeah. And that, so that brings me to wanting to ask you how you apply those principles in the socioeconomic technology initiative. So that's um, something you're involved in that leverages data analytics and machine learning. Is that right? What's the vision? Of I mean, the, the socio-technology initiative, we call it SETI for short, was born out of the frustrations of constantly finding these barriers to information being raised in our, in our dialogue processes. And we really just thought, well, hang on, isn't that something that, that could be 
removed? Is that not achievable with the advances in, in technology to move beyond sort of central repository style libraries of research papers and data and so on, which is accessible to those who know how to find them and then are prepared to trawl through everything and read it all? And isn't there an opportunity to harness all these incredible new developments to create visual landscapes, bring lots of different kinds of data in multiple formats together, which wasn't achievable until relatively recently. And if we could do that, how would it benefit the different stakeholder groups? And as I mentioned earlier, in looking around the, the organizations that can afford sophisticated systems, are deploying those, they very much fall into their, 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 their business intelligence softwares and so on. But the big gap was how do you bring the community voice to the table? Because our feeling, and we've tested this with a couple of different focus groups, is if the community information as close to real time as possible is easily accessible on an open access platform. Communities can see that this is working for them. Mm -hmm. Then I think it provides an opportunity for the other stakeholders to really start to engage with them. So we focused on that first because that was the biggest gap. And we've spent the last two years basically building a bespoke qualitative data ingestion system and it's involved many trips That's to the field <laughs> <laughs> well it goes back to quite simply how do you capture a conversation and mm -hmm. it's remarkable like that old question about how do you quantify the social why we don't take social management seriously as a technical discipline is because in a very technical industry we say oh well, when you can't quantify social that makes me uncomfortable but if you were able to speak to that, then it really changes the conversation. It changes it considerably. And it's, it also brings a level of rigor to the kinds of consultations that we have been having. Mm -hmm. Because the human mind and the human method of communication is so diverse and we, we take so much of it for granted in terms of being able to assess or understand the tone, the meaning, the, the intent of a statement or a, a contribution that someone makes. But when you have to take that into a digitized format, you really start to appreciate the complexity of human engagement. Yeah. And so that's taken a considerable amount of work and iterative processes of testing to figure out what the key data points need to be as a structure and then how do you build on from that to develop the levels of nuance that start to give you the real feel of a conversation, you know? So, and in so doing, are you able to remove a layer of bias then potentially as well? Or that which one person might miss and another might understand from a particular conversation? It reduces the level of bias. At the moment where we're at with the development of this critical base of the pyramid, I'd call it, is we're still working with educated researchers who have mm -hmm. the ability to, to data capture. The next level of this tool is to take it to a point where community people can directly input their information into the system. And that way, we intend for the system to reach past what I would call the, the traditional filters that exist in communities, be it a, a traditional leader, mm -hmm. a political figure, someone with a particular agenda. And those are very often people who attend consultation meetings hosted by a mining company. They're there to, to promote their economic interests. And so you're not reaching the wider community members who would never participate in those consultations. But we're hoping that this tool right. would open input of data or information to, to the broader community. So that's quite powerful then to addressing marginalized and vulnerable groups as well. Yes, absolutely. 
Absolutely. Because remember that the data that will be input by community members will all be anonymized. So, okay. There's, there's, a, there's a clear privacy pr uh, protection. So you can identify that female people in um, this area between these ages are flagging or t talking mainly about this issue. This is starting to bubble up. So you can, you can segregate the data by who, when, how. You, know, you can geospatially locate it. You can link it to other channels of information that people use. And you can start to, through an aggregated process, pick up issues that are arising. And the hope is that this gives all stakeholders, but especially companies and local governments and people with the resources to, to intervene, the opportunity to be proactive before situations become out of control. So that can make an incredible difference to your social risk management and brings, you know, feedback mechanisms to a whole new level. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at it from the business case perspective, how could this really impact your risk mitigation strategies and lower your costs? You know, I mean, a day's production lost at a mine site because of protests outside the gate is enormous. It's unreal. Yeah, I remember the cost of conflict study in 2014, right? The, the one that I think shifted. Yeah, extraordinary data. So if you had an inkling that there was, some, uh, there was tensions bubbling in a space, a good couple of months before they happened, gives you the opportunity to possibly even send out feelers or, or send out alerts or to your mindsight people, to your teams to say, look, there's, there's something's going on here. Let's go and talk to the people about it. Let's find out more. And let's see if we, there's, there's something that needs to be addressed or resolved. Yeah. So at a high level, can you summarize how exactly SETI works in layman's terms? It's designed as an open access platform for all stakeholders to use, built from the ground up, which I think is the unique feature. So we don't just look for any data that might be of relevance to a geospatial location. It's driven by issues that are arising or information that is aggregated and arising from the communities themselves. And what one then looks for is the other quantitative data, social and economic, that can corroborate, correlate, and maybe even seek out causality around issues. So the real power of SETI is by combining social and economic data to hopefully create a much wider view of a landscape where you'll be able to possibly look at for instance, a health issue. You think that there's a health problem, but actually there's a nutrition problem related to water being diverted away from previously sustainable agricultural crops in a community. So your problem isn't the health issue. It's the water related to the farming uh, and food systems that are leading to something else. So it's trying to look for the unsiloed unstructured approach to informing better decision-making. So for example, one of the use cases that we're exploring that would help to make SETI a self-sustainable, self-funded platform is to look at how we could link companies' internal data. So for example, payroll records, medical records, that they have for their employees who are residents or reside in the communities around them and put that information into a secure data vault and create a filter that links directly to the platform so that they can see their company information or their specific data interacting in the broader landscape of where they operate and start to be able to link what they're learning from the, the other qualitative and quantitative data directly back to their business. And we think this could have um, enormous potential to Im impact both decision-making in companies, but also create a self-funding mechanism for the platform that would allow it to grow with new technologies that come online, support the tech team that needs to maintain it. Um, and this would then allow it to be a continuous benefit for all the stakeholders. So that same sort of thinking could also be applied to, for example, 
government departments uh, at a national level or at a local level, looking at how their requirements need to interact with the landscape and what uh, that looks like more specifically for them, statistically, demographically, economically. So there's a lot of opportunities for different use cases to be explored that will grow out of the data as, as it builds volume. So on the flip side of the business case and the management of social risk, I suppose that the platform can also be leveraged for contributing more meaningfully to, to socioeconomic development in local communities, what we were talking about earlier. Absolutely. I mean, I think the vision is for this tool to make collaboration regionally, locally and nationally more effective in terms of development planning frameworks. So, you know, at a local level, for the local government's service delivery priorities and the mine company's social and labor plan, um, regulated contributions and their CSI spend to be able to work more effectively together to be addressing the actual needs as identified through communities themselves as opposed to, well, we think we need another school or we should build another daycare facility and now, you know, our obligation box, our compliance box has been ticked for that. But it's rather being able to foster the ability of people to more meaningfully address the needs that the community expresses. And not just from a, from a, a needs perspective, but also looking at the aspirations and the dreams of that community for their longevity. Because don't forget that all of us that work in these organizations, be they government or NGOs or, or the mining companies, at some point, those key drivers move on. They leave. But the people that you're designing for or trying to, to create sustainable environments for stay. This is their world. They live in it. And if they're not directly involved in co-creating and designing for their future, then we're looking at Another continuous cycle of failed local economic development projects, sustainability initiatives that just get recycled with different names and new jargon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes me think of, you know, we, we don't often use Maslow's hierarchy when we think about these community development initiatives, but you know, every one of us aspires to self-actualize. Every one of us doesn't want to just be living in that level where all we can think about is needs and needs, needs, needs. Indeed, what are our aspirations? You know, what, what do you want to do with your life? What do you dream of for your community beyond just survival needs? So I wanted to ask you a bit more about what your learnings so far have been. You said you've been working on this for a couple of years now. And I suppose in that time, you've already learned a bit. Uh, what are some of the learnings that you can share with the audience? So I think a, a critical learning has been the multitude of different situations and data points that need to be considered in the building of a system like this to be to be really inclusive and 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 to to sincerely reflect the nuanced level of of people's communications, conversations, and so on. So that's, that's been very exciting, but extraordinarily challenging. I think one of the, the big takeaways has been also the understanding of the other aligned organizations or, or inputs that need to be in place for it to, be, to work. And this is where I see great opportunity for the potential of shared value that a mine offers. So I'm talking specifically around connectivity. Mine host communities are generally in very rural areas. Ac access to connectivity is low and expensive. Data is expensive. But there's a wonderful opportunity for mining companies to enable this participation and create this um, environment where they're getting closer to their communities by extending their own technologies that they're deploying as their automation levels increase in their mind, at their mine sites to the broader community at no cost. You know, it's not hard to boost your, your Wi-Fi capabilities wider than your immediate site or five kilometers from your site. And also, you know, so the uptake issue is a key challenge that would need to be overcome. I see a lot of opportunity for impact investors 
to to utilize this data. And this is becoming an, a really exciting new uh, area that mining companies are, are starting to embrace, where mining companies will, will rightly say that, that we are impact investors because we bring impact to an area, we invest. And yes, through infrastructure, roads, telecoms, that kind of thing, but they're not actual impact investors in the, in the true sense of investors looking at businesses that will are designed for social good and will be long-term sustainable and go lightly on the environment. So there's this beautiful opportunity for this kind of data to not only support better decision-making that, that the, the primary industry such as mining can make around leveraging their infrastructure for shared value, but it can then build further to bring in those bigger, uh, longer-term impact investors looking at initiatives around regenerative agriculture, access, this development or um, processing here out of leveraged out of um, access to water for agriculture result in, and, and the mine providing a, a, a direct access to market through rail or road to port, then create a long-term sustainable economy, you know. So there's there these really nice opportunities that are starting to open up and bring in other players to look at things in a regional perspective and for, for alternative economic development opportunities to reduce the dependency on mining. That's fantastic. And so kind of linked to that, do you, do you see a more clear path emerging through these kinds of learnings for alignment and acceleration of priorities such as the sustainable development goals or the Africa mining vision? Yes, I think the, the mining sector has involved quite a ways since the African mining vision was first tabled. It's exciting to see that there are now more enabling tools that are allowing those conversations to happen and be actioned. I think we still lack the courage in many situations to really reach out and collaborate. There are some good initiatives taking place. One of them is the Impact Catalyst that's happening in South Africa. Yeah, that's a very cool project. It is. It's still at, a, at an initial stage. So it's being driven sort of still from, you know, organizations that do the bigger thinking. I'm waiting for the moment when it hits the ground and we can start bringing the conversation down to, to the community level and link them in in a really meaningful way. So it's still quite high level with research institutes, business and, and government. But it's, it's taking off and mining is a long-term business. So the wheels turn slowly, um, but it's, it's happening. <laughs> yeah, no, there's, a, there's definitely a lot to be hopeful about. Um, so going back to SETI for a moment, in these couple of years that you've been rolling it out, who have you found that it is most meaningful for? What are some of the opportunities that we should be considering for different stakeholders? Oh, I mean, each stakeholder will come with its own sort of set of priorities. I mean, certainly from a business perspective, we spoke earlier about um, risk mitigation to sites and productivity and also the health and well-being of, of workers and, their, and the communities that they live in. There's a big impact to be had around how their social spend and therefore their social license to operate can be meaningfully quantified so that it is assisting as, a, as an authenticity tool, I suppose, in some way, or a transparency accountability tool for your ESG criteria. You know, I think if your investment community can see data that corroborates with your own reporting and that you are genuinely engaging with, with the communities around you, that is a very uh, strong position for any company to be able to put those kinds of results and information on the table to their shareholders. So that it has a, a lot of upsides from a business perspective. Um, I think it will reduce duplication in terms of spend. A lot of mining companies have overlapping communities that, that they're all trying to do things for and with. 
Um, and so there's an opportunity to rather come together and, and as a collective community in terms of, of what needs to be done rather than what are we doing to make ourselves look better. So that will all build on itself because as, as that spend actually starts to have impact on the ground, hopefully you will actually see the upliftment in the quality of people's lives. I think from the CSO and NGO environmental perspective, having access to such a nuanced level of data and, and geospatially referenced can support their strategies and their programmatic work and the funding that they're seeking for, for different programs that they run. So it would obviously be important, freely available to them. From a governmental perspective, I think it has huge possibilities for interdepartmental collaboration as opposed to what we still have in a lot of countries where you have your health ministry, your mines ministry, your environmental ministry. Or, and if there is an opportunity to help them see a landscape in its interconnectedness as opposed to from the siloed perspective, one could also see better planning taking place and hopefully also at, at, at reduced cost, you know, with, without having negative impacts. When one department does something that completely undermines another, that's a huge waste of taxpayers' money. Absolutely. Although I imagine there's a lot of challenges with this, like the, the learnings and the opportunities, it's extraordinary and it's super exciting. But what are some of the challenges that you've been experiencing so far or that maybe you expect to experience in the future as you roll it out further? Well, this is always going to be a process of discovery. Um, as I said before, we've cast around quite widely looking at other existing technologies and we weren't able to find something that really, truly met our needs. I think one of the biggest challenges we've encountered so far is simply just the lack of understanding shown by a number of stakeholders, uh, especially the more advanced ones like companies and so on. So I think for them very much the proof is in the pudding. And that's very challenging for a not-for-profit organization like ourselves because we rely on grant funding and, and donations to drive these important kinds of initiatives. It's challenging when people are interested in what you're doing, but they're quite are reserved and retreat back to their known environments and are kind of doing a wait and see to see if you'll make it or not. We're certainly looking for partners who have that kind of um, ethos in their organization to really harness the opportunities that technologies offer for, for civic good. And we're looking for, for people who share the kind of vision that we have. The industry represents a great opportunity to do good. For so long, it's worn the the hat of the bad boy, and for many good justifiable reasons. But there is a real opportunity to change that narrative and get on board and really put their money where their mouth is. We don't need to see more glossy, beautiful sustainability reports. We need to see the, the transformation on the ground. I love that. Tracy, you mentioned about the power of fostering connection through dialogue. And I wondered if you have any particular stories that you might be able to share. Oh, yeah. There, there's so many beautiful stories that come from these kinds of conversations. One of the first ones that will always stand out for me when I really saw a beautiful connection happening was shortly after the Marikana tragedy had occurred, we were quite deeply involved in... Um, fostering dialogue and community consultations are around this major, major issue that had happened in our country. And we hosted a, a dialogue specifically for the platinum sector. And at the end of the event, um, after a very robust set of discussions and a very fruitful day, I happened to catch sight of one of the most vocal mining company leads having a, an exchange of mobile phone numbers with one of the most hardline union members. And when I went up to, to the mining company guy afterwards and said, what was that about? And he said, it's just so nice to know that there's someone that I can reach out to directly on the side and actually have a conversation with or get a heads up from, and we can work this through together. 
so that was that was a, a really satisfying moment and, and warmed my heart greatly. And so presumably these are two guys that were at odds prior to the dialogue then? These are people who, um, when they represent their organizations, are traditionally enemies across the boardroom table. You know, there's hardcore negotiations going on. No one's going to give an inch. And it makes a hardening of positions instead of a finding of solutions. And by providing the, the, the kind of space that we offered, um, these two people were able to find each other in their personal capacities and work together, at least being able to open a conversation between themselves. And that's always going to have a, a much wider impact um, further down the line somewhere. So Tracy, what's next for SETI? So we're at a point now where we're ready to take the, the dev to the next, the next stage, the next phase. And that phase is looking at how we bring in other formats of data to link into what comes out of the uh, qualitative uh, data capturing. We're looking at how you then link other demographic, statistical, economic information that may be available in, in the public domain with what, what people have shared with us. And then to go back to driving the field testing through our relationships with the universities and getting iterative feedback from people in the field as to what, what they're seeing and how it's working. We have been doing some pilot work in the Northern Cape. So there was, there was a lot of work done there. We now need to go to the next level where we move from our own internal architecture, design, and build. And we very fortunately have a, a partnership with the University of Advertisrants Witz Mining Institute, who are doing a lot of excellent work in the digital mining space. And they've come on board as a partner to look at bringing students in, not to look only at their technology developments for mind sensors and new blasting methods and so on, but to look at the social aspect. So we're working with them now to um, bring in PhD and master students to help with the tech dev, but also looking at graduates that come from Minehurst communities to be our first wave of local researchers to help us further develop the, the beta testing in, in, at the community level. Because these people, they come from those communities. They, they're known. They're not outsiders coming in to do a piece of research work. And communities have a lot of research fatigue. So it's a really great way to employ graduates who are currently struggling to find work and give them a, a research stipend, but also to connect with communities more deeply through their own relationships, through family and friends and, and networks. So that's a very exciting next step that we're, we're embarking on now. And, I mean, the big vision for SETI is ultimately that any person in a community or anybody anywhere could access the platform on their smartphone, on their desktop, on their iPad, at, in whatever location they're at, and immediately be able to get a snapshot of what is sort of currently going on in an area. So that's the long-term vision. But at the, the next step will be very much looking at improving and tweaking the, the community um, data ingester as we work with, with students in the field and come across unknowns that we, we haven't experienced uh, with, our own, with our own internal team. And then at the same time, starting to look at how we, we bring in the quantitative data to create that common evidence base. So we're looking for partners to join us on this. It's, it, this, this project is, is far bigger than, than one small organization. And we're looking to learn from, from other organizations that may have expertise or experience with particular aspects of what we're trying to do and if they could bring their knowledge to, to bear on a public good such as this. Brilliant. I'm really excited to see what the next steps will look like. Thank you. Tracy, I wanted to ask you, when you think about the future of mining's contribution to sustainable development, what are you most afraid of and what are you most excited about? 
I'm most afraid that we're never meaningfully going to transform um, the organizations that operate in that space to truly embrace the ESG and sustainable development goals and to see their role as one actor in a landscape that has an important contribution to make, not as the actor that makes the decisions. I'd really be afraid if we at this stage don't see a meaningful transition to collaborative partnerships and that it goes back to more of the same, just wearing a different hat or putting on a new dress. That would be heartbreaking. Um, I think with the technologies available to the industry now to lower its footprint in terms of environmental harm and impacts, mm -hmm. uh, both on nature and on people, there's an absolute prerogative to ensure that business is for good. It's not profit at all costs. That mindset will exacerbate our demise and our existence, that we need a new economic paradigm that really em embraces an ethical path and, and has the moral courage to lead it. So that brings me quite interestingly to what you asked, what are the, what are the positives? Um, I really do believe that pioneer industries such as mining have an enormously important role to play in the development of local economies, not just as, as, as extractive industries, as big conglomerates around the world. And I meet a lot of people within the industry who honestly believe and are trying to make that difference through, through their jobs, through their work. So I have faith that there are incredible human beings in these organizations that have those value systems in their hearts. If they were encouraged more to live by those value systems and bring those ethics into the workplace, that it could be really transformative. And I also see a massive opportunity in the future for gender equality across the board in the workspace. Technology offers an amazing range of openings for women to really step forward into the industry and bring their nurturing and multi-skilled dimensional thinking to solving problems. So I think that's, that's encouraging and I'd like to see that future un un unfold for the, for the sector. I'm speaking to my heart. <laughs> So another question that I like to ask everyone on the show, you know, the show is called Prospecting Purpose. I want to ask you what purpose means to you, to Mining Dialogues 360 for this industry, about mining's contribution to solving humanity's grand challenges, to building a brighter future. For me, in a, in a personal sense, um, my purpose, I, I think, is the joy that I get from joining the dots, from seeing the possibilities that arise through the amazing conversations that, that we're involved in, and, and helping people to find those solutions, helping them to find each other to create those solutions. I get great joy out of connecting people and seeing the interconnectedness of, of all these possibilities. For Mining Dialogues, it, I think we've very much moved, I think, in the last sort of two years from really being just a dialogue forum or doing empirical research that informs dialogues towards um, more the developmental space. We're really starting to leverage our networks and our abilities to bring people together to catalyze change. And I really would like the organization to evolve and broaden its networks with others around the world to, to foster that meaningfully and, and to support the industry in its evolution. For the grand challenges, sure, those are biggies. There's never been a better time than now. I mean, COVID-19, the pandemic that's spread around the world has squarely shone the spotlight on the inordinate inequalities and weaknesses in our social systems, in our worlds, and how we address these things. These things can't be swept under the carpet anymore. Food security, water security, energy security are critical to any form 
of development for people being able to take responsibility for their lives and forge a, a path forward. So if the mining industry is not contributing directly to those grand challenges and seeing itself as a key role player, not just a taker of commodities for profit, but a meaningful driver of change, then it's not looking in the right places. You know, th this is so key. Um, and I would love to see the day when mining as, as, as an extractive industry in terms of digging holes in the ground is no longer required. I would love to see that the ability of, of mining to support innovations in new technologies like we're seeing with, with hydrogen and synthetic composites that are far stronger than some of the materials that are currently used through, through metals processing. There are incredible opportunities for, for the mining sector to transform into those spaces. Mining may not be, it may not look like what it does today in the future, but today it doesn't look like what it looked like 100 years ago anyway. And it's always, hopefully, on the road to improvement. Hopefully this time with a much more human and social conscience lens than it's had before. And that's certainly an inspiring vision. Thanks for sharing. It's a brilliant answer. <laughs> well, that's all for today's episode. This is Liz Friel on Prospecting Purpose. Thanks for joining us. And thank you so much, Tracy, for being my co-host today. Thank you. It was a pleasure talking with you. This episode is powered by Simpact, an ESG think tank and sustainability advisory firm on a mission to shape a more sustainable, socially just, and brighter future for all. Visit us at sympact.ca to learn more. What's your purpose? <laughs>